good afternoon, everybody. Um, this presentation is developing classification and recommendation engines with Amazon EMR and Apache Spark with Zillow Group. Uh, my name is John Fritz. I'm the senior product manager for Amazon EMR, and I'm joined with Jasjeet Tin, who's a senior director, data science and engineering at Zillow Group. Actually, by a quick show of hands, how many folks here are running Spark ML today? So a fair amount. How many of you guys are on Spark 2 or Spark 1? And then how many of you guys are running it on uh, EMR? Okay. So good show of hands. Um, so real quick, uh, just uh, uh, the agenda for the session. We'll talk real quick about just Apache Spark and Spark ML. It might be a little bit of a refresher for some of you of why we see this being adopted um, as one of the frameworks of choice to run large-scale uh, machine learning jobs and data science. Um, and then a little bit of slides on uh, running Spark ML on Amazon EMR, some ways to do that with low cost and some options that you have. Um, show a quick notebook just of, uh, of a demo that goes back to some of the classification algorithms that were mentioned in the previous slides, and then hand it over for uh, about half the presentation for Zillow Group uh, to talk about how they've built uh, classification recommendation engines um, for their uh, products. So, um, you know, as many of you know, Spark over the last couple of years has been a de facto engine to use for running machine learning jobs and actually data processing in general. Um, you know, many of you might have used Hadoop MapReduce before, and despite this being a massively parallel system, um, you know, there were some limitations. And so we found people adopting Spark, customers using Spark on EMR, uh, for the first reason from performance. So just like Hadoop MapReduce, it's massively parallel, but instead of, say, running multiple MapReduce jobs like you might have used for uh, Mahout job, which are some machine learning libraries over MapReduce, or something like Hive, um, Spark uses a highly optimized DAG to more effectively create a query plan and does some also full-stage code generation to make these uh, queries and these machine learning jobs efficient. Um, also, Spark minimizes I.O. a lot. With Hadoop, um, you know, between uh, map and reduce phases, you're dumping a lot to local disk. You're also shuffling things around um, between nodes. With Spark, you can cache uh, your data set, it's called data frame, in memory and distributed around all the nodes in your cluster and then run things over and over and over again for iterative processing. Also, Spark's partition aware. It won't shuffle data in between nodes unless it has to, which is different than some of the previous frameworks before. So, um, you know, we've seen customers who are adopting Spark uh, getting a, a large degree of performance versus some other older open source frameworks. Um, but another main thing besides performance is Spark is just easier to use, and we found that it really, to some degree, speaks your language. Um, whether you're more proficient in, say, Scala or Python or you want to write R, um, there's a really either native interface or a very tightly coupled library that allows you to write code in the language that you want, um, you know, or UDFs or, or whatever, to go easily construct these jobs. But beyond that, you know, typically machine learning is one part of maybe your data processing pipeline, but as, as you can see, you need to extract features, you need to clean up data, um, and that might you know, be other parts in your processing pipeline. Spark really allows you to standardize everything onto one core framework versus before you might have used MapReduce and Storm and other different libraries together. Here, you have your Spark core, which is familiar framework for all these higher level libraries, and then you can run SQL, you can run streaming jobs, you can run MLlib, which is what we'll talk about today, um, or create graph databases. Um, so, Besides having you know, great performance and uh, the ability to you know, use a variety of different languages to construct jobs, um, obviously Spark is being adopted for machine learning because of the Spark ML libraries. 
Um, they're built on top of the data frame API. So once again, this concept that permeates all of um, the different Spark uh, architectures you can build, kind of a collection of, of columns, like a relational table. Um, and But SparkML has a bunch of libraries that make it easy to extract, transform, and select features out of these data frames, so easily transforming it into a way to create your vectors. And then it has a variety of distributed algorithms uh, for classification and regression, clustering, uh, and collaborative filtering. It also has a couple of tools that make it easy to uh, do model selection. And, you know, because it's scale out, you can try many different models at once on a cluster. And then, you know, in Yamar's case, you can shut down the cluster when you're not using it. And then finally, it has the ML pipelines tool, which makes it easy to stitch all of these things together as a, and save it and rerun it later using it on, for testing and training as well. Um, there's a couple of different groups of kind of feature extraction tools that Spark ML has. Um, and, you know, this is just a small selection. There's, uh, if you go into the Spark documentation, you'll see a full list of all the different things ranging from, you know, easily extracting words, uh, normalizing features, uh, easily uh, scooping things up and creating vectors. And there's a lot of things out of the box where um, you can just use these libraries to manipulate the data that you've loaded, you know, out of data frames um, into your machine learning jobs. And you really can get this data from anywhere. We see customers on EMR, you know, leveraging a lot of uh, S3 as your kind of source of truth in Data Lake. But you might have customer data um, in many different data stores based on your use cases and your full architecture. And you can pull data out of DynamoDB with uh, the recently open-sourced EMR Hive DynamoDB connector. But using with Spark, you can pull data out of RDS. You can use the Spark Elasticsearch connector, stream data in from Amazon Kinesis or Apache Kafka. Um, use the Spark Redshift connector or use EMRFS, which is uh, EMR's library basically to interact with data in S3 to pull data out. But you can create data frames and enrich data from all of these and utilize uh, data in these disparate sources to train and, and develop your machine learning models. You know, this is just an uh, example. You know, you can have a variety of different training data. You create the feature vector using some of these tools, which is easy, um, and, uh, and then create the models. So there's a several classification models in Spark ML, um, and uh, you know, logistic regression is a common one if your data set lends itself and is more simple. Oftentimes, just trying out logistic regression and seeing how it fits is usually a good choice. Um, but also decision trees as well, which um, you know they're easier to implement. They can be very efficient. Um, you know, they can handle both numeric and categorical attributes, and in some cases, it deals a little bit better with say um, your edge case data. Um, and you know, this is an example of, of working down the decision tree to see whether uh, you know, what you're trying to find is in the class or not. And oftentimes, uh, once, once it's done, you know, then you'll have uh, you know, partitions to be able to then use in further downstream processes. So Spark ML um, can take, you know, these are a variety of two of the many algorithms that are just there. You can just start using them, testing them, and seeing which ones might fit uh, your models the best. But then building these pipelines and saving them also is easy. As I brought up before, there's the Spark ML pipelines um, uh, API where you can take a flow like this and save it, where you might start out with raw text. You're going to use the tokenizer to chop it up into words, um, then create your feature vectors, and then choose one of many models, in this case, in this diagram, you know, logistic regression, and then fit that model, and then you have uh, the fitted model. But you can then use the same pipeline for your testing phase, where you get your, your test data set, you've more raw text into uh, vectors, and then run that same model you had before that was saved with the pipeline to create your predictions and then see how the uh, predictions of have worked and whether you might want to change some things upstream or try out different models. 
And creating a pipeline really is that easy. In this case, you can see this is a simple pipeline with uh, three components, and then you fit it and, and then get your predictions. Uh, but you can make far more robust pipelines. Uh, but the point here is that you know, with this API, you can save you know, fully fitted models and have a lot of uh, interplay between uh, creating them. Um, there's a couple tools as well uh, to uh, train many different models, take chunks out of your test and your training data set, and kind of have Spark figure out what's the uh, most accurate one to use, uh, this cross-validator and the train-validation split. Um, you know, they, they basically iterate through many different models, and they'll uh, get the fitted models and evaluate the performance. Um, so and there's other ways to do this as well, but these are handy tools where if you don't have your own framework to go do so, you can leverage things that are native within Spark ML and get a lot of leverage out of that. So um, that was a little bit of background on Spark ML, and Justit will go into a little bit more on some of the algorithms they use at Zillow to build out these classification recommendation engines. Um, but I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about um, how we see customers running uh, these applications uh, in the cloud. And we see many customers adopting Amazon EMR to do it for a couple main reasons um, surrounding uh, on this slide. Uh, one is ease of use. So if you're you know, spending all your time creating these models, investigating your data, you don't want to spend a lot of time configuring Spark. You don't want to spend a lot of time managing clusters. And you also um, you know, don't want to deal with uh, you know, dependency mismatches, these sorts of things. So with EMR, within a couple clicks in the console, you can have a fully functioning Spark cluster ready to run whatever investigations you want to do uh, within a couple of minutes, several minutes. Um, so very easy to get it up and running, fully configured with dynamic allocation and notebooks, and you can just start writing um, you know, whatever jobs you have against data in S3. Um, it's also low cost. You pay for what you use. Um, if you're not actively running a machine learning model, why do you need to pay for the cluster? You don't. You can shut it down. So in EMR, and I think we'll talk about this in a minute, but decoupling storage and compute, you can spin a cluster up when you need it, process the data, and then shut it down um, you know, when you're not using it. Um, Open source variety is important. As many of you know, Spark uh, code base is moving very, very fast. It's incredibly important to have the option to run the latest version as soon as possible after it comes out. You get new features, new improvements, oftentimes new improvements to things in Spark R and Spark ML. Um, EMR has been shipping Spark very close after the open source GA. We were a couple days behind uh, when Spark 2 went open source uh, GA. Uh, was available in EMR within a few days in minor versions as well. So, you know, we're committed to delivering the latest and greatest Spark bits as soon as possible after they're open source uh, GA generally available. Um, there's some management things behind the scenes and, you know, replacing uh, bad nodes and scaling, um, variety of security features ranging from encryption. Um, and if all the kind of automated defaults aren't uh, meeting your use case, you also have root access can add on other libraries. Oftentimes you find that if you wanted to augment the Spark ML machine learning libraries, say with custom ones that you've written or third-party vendor libraries, um, you can bootstrap those on at cluster creation time and utilize them along with all of the uh, you know, bits and components that are packaged. Um, we have a few notebooks. Uh, Jupyter is natively there, or sorry, uh, Zeppelin is natively there, which was born out of the Apache ecosystem. It is a very tight integration with Spark. Um, the latest version of Zeppelin has some interesting authentication features if you have multiple users logging in at once. But also you can interact with things like Hive and other components in the Hadoop ecosystem as well. So it's a very powerful notebook. You can save things to Git. You can save files. You can back the notebooks in S3. So there's a lot of um, interesting features with Zeppelin. But if you don't want to use Zeppelin, you can use via bootstrap actions, install things like Jupyter um, or RStudio um, that can communicate with Spark. Jupyter with Apache Tori as well we found works well. And we expose a lot of these bootstrap actions on the AWS Big Data blog. 
and so I highly recommend taking a look. We had a blog post a couple of weeks back about installing RStudio and Sparkly R, which is the interface for um, Spark R, and some other things as well. We're constantly adding those uh, those things on. Um, EMR runs Spark on Yarn, so for folks who are running Spark, not an EMR, say using standalone or Mesos mode, EMR uses Yarn. Um, it plays nicely with a lot of the other Hadoop components, um, but also uh, is really great for dynamic allocation of executors to where, by default, you can log in, start writing a job, and you don't have to worry about specifying the number of executors and, you know, did I specify enough RAM. Uh, EMR will utilize, as, or Yarn will utilize as much as it can to you know, spread out the executors to run, uh, to run whatever workloads you put in. Um, also, we have available the Spark UI. Um, you can access it through the resource manager um, UI, basically click through, and if you're um, running in cluster mode, it'll proxy you to where the Spark driver is running. Um, it's very, very useful. You can see um, the DAG of the job, executors kicking in, configuration settings at runtime. Um, you can see if there's an error, typically it will bubble up the stack trace so you can see um, exactly what happened and quickly go either figure out what yarn container log uh, the errors in, or sometimes it even gives you, oftentimes actually gives you enough context to immediately know what the error was in your job. Um, also, historical jobs are available in the Spark History server, um, which is available on the master node as well. Um, a couple tips and tricks for, um, you know, basically increasing performance and trying to reduce cost, um, which is an important uh, kind of components when designing any big data architecture. Uh, the first is auto-scaling. Um, this feature shipped in EMR a, a couple weeks back, and we found that there's a variety of use cases for auto-scaling. One is if you're resource-constrained while running a job, programmatically add nodes up to a certain amount, and uh, with Yarn dynamic allocation enabled for Spark, um, Spark will start using those extra nodes and putting executors on them and scale your job out. Um, but on the flip side, also scaling the cluster down and not paying for it when nodes aren't being used. Like, for instance, if you um, have a data scientist, you come in, you create a cluster, you run some things, and then leave for a couple hours, that cluster's idle during that period of time. You can set auto-scaling policies to say, look, if this cluster's idle, um, at the end of the hourly boundary, because you've already paid for the hour, shrink things down in the background and kind of dynamically scale out when more work has been added. So there's some uh, pretty, you can save some serious costs by doing that, but also increase performance by dealing with, with scaling. Um, what EMR does and how, how it works is that we pump a bunch of metrics into CloudWatch based on Yarn, and actually we have a couple new ones, uh, one on the Yarn percentage memory used, so, you know, 80% of my Yarn capacity is used. It's a fraction of two Yarn metrics, so it's a custom one that we pump, and also just the containers pending. Uh, yarn runs executors in Yarn containers, and the ratio of the containers pending over running, it gives you a good indication of if you put on another node, would you be able to put anything on it? So you can utilize those two metrics, also a variety of other ones we push, or even custom metrics based on things that Spark. You have to figure out how to instrument and push it to CloudWatch, but EMR will take uh, that information and behind the scenes create CloudWatch alarms and use application auto-scaling to dynamically add and remove nodes. And actually in the console, um, under the cluster details page, you'll see the events of auto-scaling events. So you can keep track of, so if you wonder, hey, why is my cluster three nodes? You can see the uh, events that kind of said, hey, you should scale down now. One other thing to add is that uh, we find customers leveraging Spot to save significant amounts on their processing jobs. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, EC2 Spot is a way to bid on excess capacity. 
um, it's almost like a market where if you bid above uh, above the current market price, you get that instance. However, if the market price goes above what you bid, Spot will reclaim that instance back. So it's very good for workflows, and obviously Spark's a distributed system, so it can typically weather some nodes being taken away. And if you decoupled your storage and compute in S3, your whole cluster theoretically could go. You would just rerun the job in your data set with all of your training data or test data um, or you know, whatever you're making predictions from um, will be safe in S3. So today we see customers creating a lot of uh, EMR clusters using uh, Spot, uh, typically for the task instance type, which doesn't have HDFS data node, although Spark doesn't heavily utilize HDFS, but just it's easier to scale out and scale in without having uh, HDFS do any rebalancing. Um, but what we found is that uh, customers, uh, depending on the Spot market price, might want to have, say, a variety of different instance types based on what's the cheapest uh, spot price per, uh, you know, GB RAM or core available and can you just give us that? Or not know what AZ you want to launch in. Because spot prices differ in AZs, it could be that one availability zone is having a uh, spot price spike while other ones are low. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to know exactly what AZ you should launch the cluster. So coming soon, um, we'll have the ability to, uh, in EMR, you can specify a list of different instance types and different bid prices, and also a list of different AZs. So if you want to run a machine learning job at cost, um, EMR will do a lot of the, uh, the lifting in the back end to figure out what is the cheapest AZ and the cheapest set of instance types to run to give you that uh, cluster at the lowest uh, possible cost. And then finally, once you've um, you know done a bunch of investigation, you've utilized the notebook, you have a job that you like, um, it's time to take it out of your sandbox environment, put it into production. Um, and there's a couple ways that we see customers leveraging the AWS ecosystem to go do this. The first and uh, easiest one is using uh, an EMR step. Uh, EMR is an API, uh, our step API, and you can add a step, which is a discrete unit of work. Um, in this case, a Spark application. Under the hood, we'll use Spark Submit and submit it to your cluster. And that's interacting with an EMR API. You specify where your jar is in S3. EMR will take the, uh, take the jar application, run it, um, and then write out whatever output uh, you've specified in that. And that's easy. You can keep writing, adding steps, and it'll execute them in, uh, in sequence. And then when you're done, you can even have a step, say, terminate my cluster when this is finished. Um, or when you create a cluster, run these steps and then terminate it. Um, for more advanced use cases around steps, you can use something like AWS Lambda um, and say, well, on this event, trigger running the step, trigger creating this cluster. And it could be time-based. It could be, um, you know, new data comes into an S3 bucket that's watching it. You know, go launch the job and go run the job. For more advanced use cases around, say, creating DAGs of jobs or things like that, you can use AWS Data Pipeline, which is a service in AWS that, uh, you know, can provision clusters, run many jobs, and shut down cluster and create new ones. You can create really complicated workflows building with both AWS services and jobs within those services. But we also see lots of customers leveraging things like Apache Airflow, um, which was uh, open sourced by Airbnb, which is another robust scheduler, Luigi, um, or even Uzi on the cluster. You can choose to install Uzi on EMR and use uh, Spark Actions to uh, create DAGs of jobs. Um, so with that, I'll hand it over to Jasjeet. We'll talk a little bit how they leverage this technology at Zillow. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Um, so uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, so my name is Jasjeet Din, Senior Director of Data Science and Engineering at Zillow Group. And today I will talk about uh, recommendation systems at Zillow Group. So I'll cover, I'll first give an introduction on Zillow, and I'll go through some of the use cases related to recommendation systems. 
I'll go over a high-level architecture uh, of, of a recommendation platform, and I'll spend most of our time on uh, going deep diving into our machine learning algorithms. I'll talk about our training and scoring pipeline, and then finally I'll look, we'll talk about the evaluation metrics we look at to uh, make sure our models are working properly. So Zillow Group is a conglomerate of various real estate sites, mobile applications, and some of them are here on the slide deck. Trulia, which started uh, in 2005, was among the first to provide home-related data such as home facts, prior sale information, um, online to make it available for everybody. It was quite revolutionary at the time. You couldn't get this data easily publicly. Zillow, which started around the same time, was the first to provide home valuation model for free. Um, it was really kind of the first time where you can just go to a home, uh, look at a number and say, oh, this is how much I should buy this home for, or this is how much I should sell it for. Street Easy and Naked Apartments specialize in the New York City market, and uh, they're the dominant players there. Hot Pads is among the leaders in rentals. Mortech provides uh, loan pricing information uh, for multiple uh, lenders. Restly provides developer APIs for real estate data. And then Dotloop is doing something that I think will benefit all of us, which is about ma making the real estate transaction uh, paperless. I'm sure many of you have gone through a real estate tra transaction. It's fairly, uh, still a f fairly painful process. So now we'll go into uh, recommendation systems at Zillow Group. And here are some of the core, some of the core use cases include email, uh, where we sell recommended homes for sale and recommended homes for rent on email, personalized for a user. And then when you go to the home details page, say on Trulia or on Zillow, and uh, you'll see similar homes, uh, uh, modules, and that's also uh, a recommendation-based uh, algorithms behind the scenes. Personalized search is about taking your explicit query and modifying that with an inferred query that we compute offline um, using machine learning algorithms so that everyone gets a personalized recommendations. On mobile, what we're doing is providing uh, contextual and location-aware based recommendations via mobile app notifications. And on Zillow, we have a feature called Home Claims, where you can go and claim your home, and you can go and update your, your facts directly. And in order to increase coverage there, we're, we do predictions on who is the homeowner of every single home. And we also do predictions on uh, who we think is going to be selling, selling their home soon. Uh, we have algorithms around lender selection, and we have algorithms around similar photographs and, and similar videos. So here's our uh, high-level architecture. At the top there uh, are the recommendation APIs. There's, both, there's a real-time scoring aspect of that as well which um, I won't go through today, but maybe in another session. And on the right-hand side, you have property feature, featureization, where you take uh, properties and extract signal out of those properties and convert them to a feature space that our recommendation algorithm understands. And I'll go into, deep, into that later on. Property aggregate features are 
features on a property but leverage additional data such as uh, user signals. For example, there's a feature to determine how popular a property is, for example, using user signals. Wedge counting is a in-house built um, uh, collaborative filtering algorithm and we'll go into shortly. Uh, at the core of all of this, uh, as John uh, mentioned earlier, is, is our data lake, which is um, based on S3. Um, all the data uh, for our recommendation um, lives there. And then Zillow and Shulia, we have a lot of so-called legacy systems where there's, there's, data, there's Microsoft SQL Server, there's Redis, there's MySQL databases, and we need to get the data from these databases and put it into the cloud. So we have uh, custom data collection systems to get the data into the cloud. And uh, we actually have a, a nice um, blog article on how we do this on our data science blog, if you want to read later on. User profiles are about building uh, uh, user preferences um, so that we can recommend personalized content to users, and I'll talk about that. And rankings puts it all together. Ranking takes the user profiles, takes kind of collaborative filtering, takes um, property features, and puts it all together. Okay, so let's go deeper now. Okay, so fundam the fundamental concept uh, through all, through, for all the recommendation APIs is defining what is a like and a dislike. And the goal here is we want to predict homes for a user using behavior of other, other similar, home, similar users. And to explain that, let's take this example. So Spencer, the CEO of Zillow Group, really likes the $19 million home and the $22 million home. And Stan uh, likes the, and Spencer doesn't like the $664,000 home, more modestly priced home. Stan likes the more modestly priced home, but doesn't like the $22 million home. So the goal here is to predict, does Stan like or does he dislike the $19 million home? And our definition of like is the user actively engaged with the property. And a dislike means the user didn't actively engage. So what does that mean? Look at the right there. Um, the candidate set are all visits to a property where uh, the, the timestamp is not equal to zero. Zero means the user never visited a property, and a timestamp means the user has at least one visit to the property. Now, we don't want to use zero, uh, visits set to zero because that will highly skew the algorithms because most users don't visit uh, most properties. And we also look at, we define like at by looking at, for example, the number of views, uh, time spent on a property, uh, the number of leads sent, number of saves, number of shares, and there's all certain thresholds to all of these, and, uh, and these are constantly being learned as well. And now that we have the definition of like and dislike, so I'll first talk about collabor our collaborative filtering around. So wedge counting was, in, was uh, invented by a really talented data scientist at Trulia, Joseph Kong, and that's his actually paper. It was submitted in the KDD Cup in 2011. It came up um, among the top uh, algorithms. And let me go over that a little bit, what that is. So in Wedge County, the idea is to take common items and common users and figure out, and their interactions, 
with the item that you're trying to predict on, in this case a property, and determine um, and then compute these wedges. So you can see uh, in, the, uh, in the top left, UTG represents the target user, and IATG represents the targeted property we're trying to make a prediction on. So in our example, UTG would be Stan, and then ITG would be the $19 million home. And then IOT represents another item, and UOT represents another user. So in the first wedge, you see that UTG like, doesn't like IOT, and, I, and, and UOT doesn't like IOT, and UOT doesn't like I, IOT. So if you count these all up, there's actually eight configurations. And taking an example in the previous slide, there's like, like, like the $19 million home, so there's two wedges. It's wedge number three and wedge number five. In wedge number three, Stan doesn't like the $22 million home, Spencer likes it, and Spencer likes the $19 million home. So you increment wedge three by one. These are all counts. And then it would try is Stan likes the modesty price home, Spencer doesn't like it, and Spencer likes the $19 million home, so we increment wedge five by one. And then there's eight of these features, and you count them all up, and there's, you actually notice there's actually 16 features, so there's actually eight additional normalized features. So one of the challenges in recommendation systems is that very popular properties, let's say the White House, um, get a lot of engagement, and that skews your results. So what we do is you compute eight additional wedge count features by dividing that by uh, the degree product GFU and KI, which represents, GFU represents the number of users that uh, have interacted uh, with an item, and the item, the item, target item represents the number of users that interacted with it. So you just multiply it and divide by that number. So you get a total of 16 features. And we use a, a gradient boosted classifier, which uh, John went over briefly. And then what you do is you make a prediction on all the user and property pairs uh, that, uh, that you want to make prediction on. We filter, in order to reduce cost and compute time, uh, we, we filter by top 10 zip codes and by a certain number of properties per user. So in our example, the goal again is uh, the user ID is Stan and property ID is 90 million and the features are on the right. So you create this data set, use the gradient boosted classifier to, to train your model and then you score new user property pairs with that model. So now we'll move on to the user profile. And uh, the user profile, again, represents the particular interests of every single user. And the key signals that we use include traffic data on, uh, on our sites, uh, what, what users are, are viewing and what their interactions, those events. And we use mobile app data, uh, interactions with the app, and we also leverage the search queries. And just like in our Wedge County algorithm, the labels are like and dislike, so there's zero and one, and each uh, property uh, will have, we convert each property to a set of categorical features. So you can see on the right that, for example, bathroom, you have zero bath, 0 0.5 bath, one bath, and so on. The price, you have the price there, it's 100K to 125K. So everything is, is categorical in nature, and so properties have um, 1,000 features. And they're either set to zero or one. So, you know, properties either could be, 
if a property is a two bathroom, then it's not a zero, uh, zero bath, 0 0.5 bath. Those will be set to zero. And as I mentioned before, on the bottom here, you, set, you have kind of the bedroom features. And this user profile specifically, uh, this user likes, um, so scores are between zero and one, and this user likes a two bedroom, uh, and also likes three bedrooms, but doesn't like a studio, doesn't like uh, a one bedroom. So your model, your, again, it's a gradient boosted classifier, well, your model outputs these scores per user. And as I mentioned earlier, ranking puts this all together. And you know, that's, an topic, that's a major topic on its own, but I'll cover um, some important parts of that. Essentially, what we do is you take your property uh, matrix, uh, which are a set of categorical features, either zero or one, and you take your user vector, which are those preference scores for the same feature space, multiply it together, and you essentially get um, a, a single score. Uh, at the end. And there's also additional features, such as at the bottom there I have age decay, um, popularity based scores, quality scores that are part of this feature set. And, but ultimately it's a very simple operation to, to once, once you compute the, the user vector and the, do the featureization. Now, here's our training and scoring pipeline. And at a high level, what this is all about is taking raw, use, raw signals and collecting that data put, um, and filtering that data to what we care about and creating the training and scoring data sets, then training your models, score your, uh, score your predictions, and then put it into some data store so you can actually surface those recommendations. So I'll go, let's go into this a little bit further. So in the recommendation use case, there are three types of data sets. We have the user behavior, for example, what users are interacting with on your site, uh, mobile app actions. So we have a custom event API that is invoked, and that data then gets pushed into a Kinesis stream so it's, and then it lands on S3 all in, in near real time. Uh, for the property data, public record data, which comes from the counties in general, uh, that uh, we have a producer that pushes the data also into a Kinesis stream. And for listing data, a similar idea where we push that into a Kinesis stream. Then for the user behavior data, what we do is we use Spark EMR to uh, filter that data to what we care about, a lot of events we don't care about, and we store it in our user store, which is Hive backed by S3. And there's also a Redis store which stores the reverse index, which is uh, for the Wedge County algorithm, it's important that you need to look up all the users that interact with the property. So the key here is the property ID, and then you have a, a vector of users. So that's also computed. Then. The, then we use Spark EMR to generate the training data sets, taking the data from the user store, taking the data from uh, list, uh, listing data and the property data, and we create the training set, again, in Hive back by S3. We then train our models in uh, using Spark, those green boosted classifiers. We store them into S3. Uh, we actually, I'm actually, I heard about the, the key value, editable key value pairs on S3 that I think will be very useful because it'll allow us to um, um, uh, easily find all, you know, there's 
thousands, tens of thousands of models, so it allows us to, to kind of mark that with metadata. So I'm very excited about that feature that was announced this morning. Um, then we uh, use Spark EMR to score and make those predictions, and that ends up into uh, a Redis database. For offline evaluation, a fairly common set of metrics we look at. We have a validation set where we, where we optimize the hyperparameters, do the hyperparameter tuning, and then we have training and test data sets. Uh, it's essentially you, you, you go back in time, you take uh, from today, the past weeks of data would be your test set, and the week before will be your training set, and then you keep going back in time as, as far as you want to go. And key off metrics we look at, uh, your standard precision, recall, um, and freshness is very important because we want to uh, surface fresh listing predictions for users and, um, and especially listings that have important uh, key changes like this, such as the list price dropped or increased. Um, so uh, we want to make sure we, we, um, so we look at how fresh our listing is. Are they one day old, two days old, you know, things like that. And then coverage. We want to make sure to surface uh, listings that might not have a lot of user action, but we want to surface those listings to, uh, that, uh, to users that are relevant. So future work, we are looking at the building classifiers for uh, the listing description. There's a lot of uh, um, interesting data in, in the description. They're doing text mining around that. Looking at images and extracting signal out of images uh, to, 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 to make better predictions. Uh, and then also we're very excited about structured streaming um, on Spark and uh, to move that fairly batch, as fast batch is happening often, but we want to get to more of a real-time uh, uh, scenario. So we're very excited about that. Leveraging more signals and then uh, doing more around real-time scoring, using in-session behavior to make predictions. Thank you very much, um, and um, there's our blog on the right side, so please check it out. And also, we're hiring, so please come join us as well. Take some questions? We'll take some questions. Uh, there's no, there's no mic, I think. We'll, we'll take some questions down here. Thanks, everybody, uh, for your time.